Hello, yoga people, and welcome to the Yoga People podcast. My name is Catherine Fennessy, and my guest today is Brooke Spencer, a Bikram and Yin yoga instructor. Brooke grew up near Chicago, lived in New York for seven years before becoming a traveling yoga instructor in Europe for two years, and she is now planted in Austin, Texas. Brooke and I work together and can talk to each other for forever. So I'm very excited for today's episode because I always love my conversations with Brooke. In today's episode, Brooke shares with us her journey with anorexia and navigating her eating disorder through yoga. So welcome, Brooke. I'm excited to have you here. If you want to take a minute before we get started to introduce yourself to the people. I am Brooke Spencer. I have been teaching Bikram yoga for about three years. I've been practicing this yoga for about nine years. I used to work in public accounting, so I spent many years in the corporate world. And now, after teaching for a couple of years and also having traveled all over the world, um, I have found a way to sort of combine the two. I do some of the bookkeeping and the taxes for studios um, in the U.S. Yeah, that's awesome. I love when people take their their corporate backgrounds and implement it into the yoga world. I think that's a fun transition. Yeah, I think it's a way to be of service in another way. Um, And it's also a way to just stay connected to all the people that I know and love. So before we get into it, tell me a little bit about your travels. I've heard stories here and there of you teaching yoga in Europe and seeing all these cool places, but I don't think I've really gotten the full rundown. Yeah, so when I first um, became a Bikram yoga teacher, I realized that there's just so much more to learn. Um, My travels began as just an exploration of seeking mentoring, knowing that the more I taught and the more places that I taught in um, would make me more equipped to help my students in the long run. Um, And it's not a downside that I got to see gorgeous places all over the world teaching this yoga. It's It's a testament to how widespread this yoga is and how how many amazing people there are out there dedicating their lives to to spreading this yoga. So I'm absolutely fascinated by Brooke's travels and being a traveling yoga instructor. And so we already established that we'll be doing a full episode on the nuances of being a traveling teacher and just what you experience and how to do it and all that. So look out for more of Brooke. But for today, let's get into our topic. So, Brooke, would you mind walking us through just your journey and the timeline of your eating disorder? Yeah, so I had an eating disorder when I was in my teens, probably uh, 15, 16 is when it started. And, you know, I it's a process to, to go through all of that. But I, I, I truly believe that when I started becoming more well is when I started practicing yoga. So my anorexia was really in the teens. I was a dancer, a runner, a top student. And I think that some of 
the things that lead to that sort of behavior. It's varied for everybody, but um, there is certainly, we can talk for ages about the societal norms, having pictures and models and advertisements that are photoshopped and show, I don't know who makes the ideal um, (laughs) standards of beauty and women and body and stuff like that. But there's a lot of weight put on those things in our society. So there's certainly that. And then I, you know, I, I, over the years, I've just discovered that part of the mentality is a little bit feeling unworthy, not having the, the connection of eating food for nourishment. There's sort of, whether it's societal or personal, there's sort of a feeling of restricting will somehow make the person somewhat different or smaller or change size. So it sounds like all the main activities that you were in when you were younger, like dancing, running, and just being a good student, all placed a lot of emphasis on perfection. And so do you think that that played a big part in the development of the anorexia? Yeah, I think so. I I think one of the um, common behaviors that we see um, in eating disorders is there's a feeling of lack of control. Mm. You know, there's a lot of pressures put on young people to achieve at really high levels, even though they're not necessarily developed, you know, into uh, adults yet. There's still sections of the brain that need that need nourishing and developing. So I think a lot of it had to do with having to do too much and feeling the pressure of achieving on a high level. So do you think that this element of food, did you kind of have the thought that this is something that I can easily control? Yeah, it it sort of manifested into that. The feelings of control is an interesting one. It's, it's, It's a nuanced topic. I think part of it is that we need to look at how we are educating young people on nutrition and the food that they eat. I don't remember there being any real education happening at, you know, in, in the teens on how to properly nourish myself. Yeah, I agree that it is something that needs to be taught because it's not really something that you think to look up on your own when you're in that mentality or as a teenager and it's not taught in schools, so it has to be implemented somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's who knows what the best way to teach that information is, you know, a lot of it is trial and error, like finding ways that make our bodies feel well. I think part of it too, is realizing the connection between mental health, physical health, and how all of the nourishment that we put in our bodies, whether it be thoughts, or what we read, or who we hang out with, or food, you know, there's a big connection between the health of our digestive system and our mental well-being. I definitely agree. You have to have that unison of mind, body, and spirit in order to have a functioning and healthy body. What do you think about social media and advertisements and that culture today, now? 
because um, I know that there's a lot of push for body positivity and all that. But every time I get on social media, I still or see an advertisement, I still kind of see the same image of the perfect female body being portrayed. So do you think that it's it shifted at all since you were really surrounded by that culture and affected by it? Or do you think it's getting better or worse? Or what are your thoughts on that? I think it has shifted um, in a really positive way. But just like with everything, there's so much more work to be done. And there's so much more. I, I think there's so much money and power to be had by demeaning women and, you know, (laughs) telling them that, oh, this product, this solution, this thing to make you smaller is the answer. Yeah. Or all these skincare products, all this makeup, there's definitely a huge market for it. Right. Cover your pores or change the shade of your hair, you know, and every once in a while I will see an advertisement that just makes me do a double take like, oh, they're, they're actually still telling us that we have to take this supplement or drink this tea to be smaller. Yeah. And you know, one of the craziest things that I've ever read, um, it was just mind blowing to me. I was reading a book about television and there was a line in it that said for every hour of television, you watch a week, your average household spending goes up $10 per hour of TV. And so it was just baffling to me that your subconscious mind takes in all these factors around you and just subconsciously without realizing it, you're thinking, oh, I I need to look like that or I want to dress like that or live like that. And so your spending habits go up in return. And it's just insane to me how much information our subconscious takes in that we don't even realize and how it can be affecting us. Yeah, I think that I think those things are huge. Yeah, absolutely. And more so than I think we realize. So in a little bit more of a a general sense, tell me about the thoughts and feelings that maybe you've experienced or you've seen in other people who are experiencing eating disorders and what that's like. I think um, there's a couple of concepts that are clear to me having been in the thick of my eating disorder and now sort of on the other side, you know, having had experienced those really low lows and, and seeing it now for what it, for what it was. And I think part of it is there's a feeling of unworthiness on some level, thinking that you're unworthy of nourishment, love, connection, honesty, And you can sort of put any sort of feeling into that category or into that sentence. Um, I feel unworthy of something, you know, and that probably changes for every person, but feeling like you're not worth being treated well. The other thing that I notice a lot in younger eating disorder people, or, or even those people that I know who have recovered and have little dips back into old behavior is that a a feeling of lack of control. If big life things come up or your personal relationships are suffering or you're suffering at your job or you're just feeling overall lack of control over your life, I think that can easily manifest into 
poor behaviors, eating and the controlling of eating becomes a way to cope with the overall lack of control over our lives. It's a, it's a, I think, I think a really human lesson to realize that we don't have control over anything. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So learning how to cope with lack of control with love and support. And again, the concept of integrity being good to yourself, no matter what, I think that those habits can speak leaps and bounds over the habits of dealing with lack of control with acting out. And the the last concept that I think comes up a lot in an eating disorder mentality is a lack of self-love. Lack of self-love manifesting in a way that, you know, we're using items or material things or, or, or taking those things away, you know, restricting your eating can often be described as not loving yourself. You know, if we think about food as nourishment and food as, you know, a a tool to help us be our best selves, you know, but if you're not feeling love for yourself as a person, there's sort of a lack of connection to your, to your being. The bring it that back to a yogic concept in teacher training. One of the biggest things that resonated with me is the way that we treat our body and our soul. So realizing that any behavior that isn't good and loving and nourishing to our soul is probably hurting us on many different levels. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it almost sounds like it's this feeling of I don't deserve this or I don't deserve to indulge in things that make me happy. Um, Mm -hmm. And yoga is definitely a tool to help you realize that you do deserve all those things. Mm -hmm. And it comes from, you know, I, I think it's really tied into the language we use in our society of food having sort of like a reward or punishment. I'll have students come in and say, oh, I, I was really bad this weekend. I, I drank two margaritas or I was really bad this weekend. I, I ate ice cream. That always causes me to pause for a moment and think, okay, what can I do to impart with love that, that that's just part of living? How can we change the dialogue from eating this piece of cake was bad to eating this piece of cake was delicious? And part of part of the experience of family and and life. It sounds like a lot of your work with yourself has come from shifting your internal dialogue. Absolutely. There was a time in my life after my yoga first started and when I was sort of coming to that realization that, you know, yes, society tells us things and I've, I've had a certain experience, but the real work begins internally. 
It definitely sounds like this shift to place more emphasis on your internal dialogue coincided with when you started yoga. And so I definitely want to get into that more. But first, walk us through your yoga journey, when you started, um, if you liked your first class, all that stuff. My first experience with yoga, it you know, I, I had done a couple of classes here and there, um, coming from a dancing background I you know I was familiar with a lot of the stretches and a lot of the positions um but the first yoga class that was actually meaningful to me was my first Bikram yoga class I was in my mid-20s I had just moved to New York City and I I went to this class as purely a physical activity you know I, I I had heard that it was really difficult and, you know, growing up as doing a lot of athletic activities, I liked the physical challenge. So walked into my first class, had, I don't think I remember 90% of that class. I just remember sitting on my mat, feeling like I had to drink a lot of water, feeling like I had to take my shirt off, um, you know, because you don't realize the weight of clothes in a hot room. Yeah. Um, I realized that everybody else around me was wearing just, you know, a top and little shorts. And I was like, how do these people, how do these people face themselves with just a little top and little shorts? So, and that's a completely different topic. Um, but yeah, taking my shirt off and realizing being confronted by the want to be a little bit more comfort in in a in an uncomfortable room, and the struggle of you know not wanting to see myself. Yeah, um, and so were you able to? I know my first my first probably three months of classes, I wasn't able to make eye contact with myself in the mirror. Did you have that situation as well? I had that um, in many ways. You know, like. I did my best to follow the instructions and be led, but I would say my first year of practice was challenging in, in, a, in a very, not, not just physically way, but in, in a way that made me really confront myself. And I, I was completely unprepared for this yoga class that I thought was, you know, just for physical benefits. I was probably still in the space of, oh, I can, you know, choose to, I can lose a couple of pounds or tone up or any of those things. But I was completely unprepared for the life altering lessons that this yoga practice would give me at that time. I think, um, yeah, my first year, it was sort of a dance between hearing the words trying to connect with them, struggling with myself. And there were many points in, in that in that year that, you know, I, w- I would walk up to the door of the building in New York City to take class and I would just want to leave. Um, so it, it took a lot of mental fortitude to get myself in that room. Um, and I wonder what kept me coming. And the only explanation I have for why I kept showing up was that some intuitive part of me knew that it was saving me. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's beautiful. It's so often that people don't want to go to their practice or don't know why they keep going, but it's something within them that tells them they should keep going. And then it's over time that you realize why the yoga is working for you. And I'm so happy that you had that realization and stuck with your practice because it seems like you're in such an amazing place right now and truly in such a powerful position to be an inspiration to so many people. So tell me a little bit about how the thoughts and feelings that are associated with anorexia presented themselves to you in the yoga room and how you were able to cope with that. The way that yoga started to slowly change me was not only through the proverbial mirror, you know, like we're, we're asking people to show up and look at themselves, move their bodies for 90 minutes. At a certain point, looking in that mirror, you can avoid it. You can use that time to hate yourself. You can use that time to, to fill your mind with all the ways that you're not enough. But at a certain point, it became easier and more pleasant and better to turn all of that around and start to appreciate myself. And how did you go about that shift in mentality? Oh, it was a process, you know, it, it, there was uh, all these things about me that I started noticing that was holding me back from what I, what I could truly be. Mm. Um, One of the biggest conversations that changed me at the very beginning of my practice was a realization with a teacher. Um, Jeannie Heaton has done a, a million things for our yoga community. She is an addict who has d- devoted her life to helping recovering addicts through the use of yoga. And I remember there was a conversation that Jeannie and I had at the very beginning that just set off a light bulb in me, like, oh, I'm not a victim. You know, this is this is hard for everybody. But seeing myself as capable and powerful and able became so much better than seeing myself as not enough or too large or focusing on you know, the body parts that I dislike. At a certain point, being in that room made me realize my habits had to change and my thought process had to change. The, the practice of yoga making a person more themselves is the most important lesson. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think it was your class that I was taking um, a while ago. And you said, don't focus on what you can't do, focus on what you can do posture wise. And I think that that's a good example of how people, you know, focus on the stuff that they don't like, oh, like, oh, I fell out of this posture, and everyone else is still doing it. But in reality, you're standing in a very hot room doing that posture and trying again. Yeah, I think there's more to be said about the person that is able to fall out. Let's say standing bow, pick up your foot and do it again. There's so many things that happen in that room that are so 
applicable to the rest of our lives. And that I think that's, that's the biggest thing that yoga taught me is that the, the way that I am in that room is the way that I am all the time. Yoga is not just 90 minutes. It's not just a teacher telling you how to get in and out of a posture. It's not, it's not any one time that you fell out or couldn't pick up your foot. It's so much more than that. I, I think the biggest lesson is that the way that we are in an uncomfortable situation tells us who we are in the rest of our lives. If we are making excuses or speaking to ourselves poorly or thinking that we're not enough, that probably connects to the way that we, we are outside of the room. You know, you can make choices on how to develop yourself. And that, that's where the self-realization and the building of your own character happens in a yoga class. Absolutely. Yeah. What would you say is one of the biggest realizations that you had in yoga surrounding this concept of choices and internal dialogue that we have with ourselves? One of the biggest lessons starts with the thoughts that you have. Because the thoughts that we have consistently become the words that we have. The words that we have become the relationships that we have. And even taking it back a step to the thought process is one of the biggest lessons I've had in my yoga journey. Because we all know that we can feel people's energy. If you're walking down the street and you're in the presence of somebody joyful and positive, you'll probably feel that. And if you're walking down the street and you're in the presence of somebody like grumpy or huffy or, you know, just in a poor state, you, you can feel that too. So applying that to yourself and deciding, deciding what kind of thoughts you're going to have is a lesson that I think everybody can benefit from. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially in, in today's society. What would your advice be on going about shifting that internal dialogue? Is it just a matter of being consciously aware of it and then making that choice to shift? Yeah, I think the first lesson um, or the first step is just to listen and notice your thoughts. I'll often, I'll often speak about that in class as I teach if I notice an energy in the room of, you know, maybe disappointment at falling out of a posture or, you know, feeling bad about taking a break or drinking water and anything like that, I often will ask the room to notice, notice their thoughts and notice if, tho if those thoughts are serving them in a positive way, supporting them, loving them, or if the thoughts are sort of tearing them down, you know, this is bad, or this is wrong behavior. And once you start to notice those thoughts, sometimes the first advice I'll give when somebody reaches out to me wanting help or advice with body image or eating disorders or anything like that is notice your thoughts. And when you identify a thought that doesn't sit well with you or doesn't serve you or could be a little bit different, just 
turn it around. What's the opposite of that negative thought? So let's say on a, fear, on a purely physical sense, my knee is hurting. I had that, I had that conversation for ages with myself because I went into this practice with many injuries, but I would often think some form of I'm not good enough because I have all this pain in my knee and, and I just can't achieve this yoga posture. And what's the opposite of that? Well, the opposite is my knees and my legs and my body gets me everywhere I need to go every day. My body is incredible. And if there's something that my body is communicating to me that's that's wrong or maybe feels pain, then what can I do to nourish that body part? Yeah, and that's such a shift in dialogue. Um, I feel like that's not the normal thought process that we have. So it's really a powerful shift to make. And I could feel the difference in your energy talking about those two things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great, great word of advice, not just to yogis, but just for humans. Yeah, the, the language that we have with ourselves can, I, I feel like there's no end or no limits to the power of your internal dialogue and the power of noticing it, changing it and seeing what that can do. It might not look the same for everybody and, and how could it be, Right. but the concepts of healing the steps to healing, a lot of those are the same. A lot of, and, and a lot of it ties back to awareness. You have to be aware of thoughts first before you can see what the other side of that thought is. Yeah, it sounds like yoga is the perfect um, complement to this work on the internal dialogue and the self. Yeah, and in a very basic sense, yoga is observation. Absolutely. And it's such a safe space and beautiful opportunity to be able to just take an hour or 90 minutes to observe yourself and make some shifts in the way that you talk to yourself. So Brooke, one final question before I let you go. What is one thing that everyone can start doing on their mats today to promote this self-love and positive internal dialogue? One of the most important things and something that we hear about often is practicing gratitude. But it's, it's one of the things where for any part of our lives, um, any part of suffering, anything that feels negative or wrong, finding a place of gratitude for everything is a, is a really powerful process. And in, in terms of purely body image, gratitude can go a really long way. Sort of recognizing when you might be trying to change a body part or alter a body part and realizing that if you flip that language into being grateful for that body part or being grateful for an experience, being grateful for being here and being able to care for yourselves. Gratitude goes a long way. Another concept that I would um, say is super important to practice on the mat today is just awareness. As yogis, we are given the opportunity not just to move, but to observe ourselves. 
and yoga as a practice it's it's only goal is to make you more you to help you achieve the best version of yourself whatever that is so being aware and approaching yourself with love and gratitude um, can go a long way beautiful yeah well i'm grateful for this conversation and all of your advice I am so grateful for you. Um, thank you for just providing this space. It is absolutely my pleasure. And a huge thank you to Brooke and all my yoga people out there. If you're currently facing an eating disorder in your own life or in active recovery or know someone who is, know that you are not alone. And please check out the links in the description of this episode for some helpful resources. Thank you all for listening and happy yoga to all.